Hi everyone, my name's Jason and this is the UK Money Podcast. On this podcast, we talk about all things money, personal finance, investments, just generally how to get ahead financially. On today's podcast, I'm going to be talking through a number of different topics. Uh, The first we're going to be talking about are objectives. So in previous episodes of the podcast and on my YouTube channel as well, I've talked a lot about um, specific like technical aspects of financial planning, different accounts, how different uh, investment asset classes work and things like that. And, you know, interestingly, interestingly, when I'm talking to clients, what I actually say is that all that stuff really should be the stuff that comes uh, comes later on in the process. Really, the first part of any good financial plan is actually working out um, what the actual objectives are. Because unless you know what those objectives are, unless you know what you're trying to achieve, it can be really difficult to, to actually know which investment, um, which level of risk, which type of accounts are actually going to be best to achieve those objectives. So going back to, to where we probably should have started to begin with, we're going to be talking about objectives, um, talking about how I kind of segregate those out, and then having a little bit of a look at the types of investment accounts, the types of things that we consider for each of those different um, sorts of objectives. Also going to be talking about um, Rishi Sunak's um, announcement uh, over the last week or so about the change to the rate of inflation. Now, that might not seem like the most exciting topic in the world, um, but it could, it's going to potentially have some fairly far-reaching consequences for various different people um, uh, and various different um, aspects of, of people's financial situation. So I think it's going to be important to look at that and look at how that might impact you depending on where you're at um, in, your, in your stage of life. And then lastly, I'm going to be talking about Ponzi schemes or Ponzi scams as I like to call them. So I've been spending a fair bit of time on social media recently and I've noticed that there's a lot of scammy type stuff out there. So for me, the big ones at the moment are these guys talking about um, Forex or foreign foreign um, exchange sort of trading, um, options trading, crypto trading, lots of stuff out there that promises really um, insane returns um, and they don't really talk a lot about the risks. Now, those sorts of investments are, can be really, really risky even if you are doing them in a legitimate way. Um, but there's also uh, quite a common way to make it look a lot safer and a lot more stable than it actually is, is by running a Ponzi scheme. So I want to talk a little bit about that. It's kind of like the oldest, the oldest, one of the oldest forms of scams out there. Um, but it's once I go through the explanation of what it is, it's pretty clear why it can be easy to fall into the trap of, of feeling like it's uh, legitimate. So on this podcast, we do talk about a whole lot of different uh, topics around money, personal finance and investments. If you have questions, if there's things that you'd like me to talk about on the podcast, then please do get in touch. Um, The more questions I've got, the more relevant I can make this content uh, and the more interesting I can make it for for you guys out there. So all my contact information is in the show notes. Um, I'm also on social media. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. I have a, a YouTube channel as well, which is UK Money TV. Uh, and you know you can jump on there, leave me comments. Uh, I put all these podcast episodes up on my YouTube channel, but I also do additional videos on top of that, um, just kind of shorter stuff, you know, more kind of five to ten minute um, snippets of of different things that are that are happening in the world, explanation of different types of investment stuff like that. So please head over there, check me out there. Please subscribe to this podcast. Um, but for now, let's just get into today's episode. Okay, so the first thing we're going to be talking about today are objectives. Now, one, often when people start to think about um, 
their personal finances and wanting to start investing, the first thing they do is start looking at the actual investments. So looking at different um, stocks that they might want to invest in or shares they might want to invest in, um, looking at setting up trading accounts, looking at buying index funds, really just starting to, to jump right into the actual investment part. And that is a really important part of improving your financial situation. You know, I talk about the importance of investing a lot, um, especially with interest rates where they are at the moment. You know, that is really important. But unless you actually know what you're trying to achieve with those investments, you're kind of flying blind. You know, you, you, there's no, not really any way to know um, how much risk you should be taking, um, how long your investment time frame is. You might not even know, you know, when you are going to get to where you're trying to get to. You know, if you're saving for retirement, for example, unless you've actually mapped out what you want your retirement to look like, you're never really going to know if you're there or not. You know, you're never going to know how much you actually need to have um, saved up or invested into a portfolio to know what kind of income you're going to be receiving. So one of the first things that I talk about when I sit down with clients is starting to talk about what their objectives are. Now, for a lot of people, that's actually um, something that they haven't actually even ever really thought about before. You know, we it can be really easy for us to fall into this trap of um, kind of running on the treadmill of life, I suppose. You know, we've got all our day-to-day um, day-to-day stuff we're trying to get um, done. We've got just looking after the kids, there's running the house, there's our careers and our jobs. Um, there's obviously the investment side of things, but a lot of us don't really spend the time to actually sit down with our partner if we have one and really map out what we want our life to look like. So for me, that's one of the really important first things you should do with your spouse to actually start the process of getting ahead financially and getting in a better financial situation. Now, when I talk about um, breaking down those objectives, it's really important that you start to get as specific as possible around them. And I find the easiest way to do that is to break them up into timeframes. So most people will have, you know, for want of a better phrase, you want you get most people are going to have um, short-term objectives, medium-term objectives, and long-term objectives. Now, I like to try and use a little bit of terminology, different terminology around that, because that doesn't really tell us a lot um, about what those objectives actually mean. So, in terms of your short-term, um, short-term objectives, I use the term right now money or emergency money, because. Really, when it comes to things that are short term, you know, money that you set, set aside for the short term, that's essentially what it is. In my opinion, everybody should have an emergency fund. You know, I will go into that probably in a, uh, that's probably a, a topic for, for a YouTube video because I can go into quite a bit of detail around that. But having an emergency fund is one of the best things you can do for your financial situation. It means that if something comes up that you weren't expecting, you have the money there to pay for it. You don't have to be relying on credit card. You don't have to be relying on other, other forms of short-term debt. Um, it just provides you a lot of control and a lot of power over your immediate financial situation. Now, as a rough rule of thumb, I generally think you know three to six months worth of living expenses is a great place to start for an emergency fund. So that's really for, for pretty much everyone, that should be the number one short-term objective is to build up an emergency fund, have an emergency fund that you've got available there, easy access whenever you need it. The second uh, form of objectives that we, that we tend to look at are those medium-term objectives. And for that, I tend to like to think of them as, as big ticket items, big ticket objectives. 
And that's because, you know, if we're looking at short-term objectives as, say, less than um, three years, I like to think of, um, well, maybe less than a year, I suppose, actually, if we're talking about emergency fund, less than a year. And then in that gap between, um, say, one year and, say, three to five years, that's more your medium-term objectives. And the reason why I use the term big ticket is because if you've got an objective in that time frame, that's what, um, for most cases, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a big ticket item, something that is going to cost you a lot of money, but that you can plan for a bit in advance. So some examples of those would be replacing your car. You know, for most people, you're going to know, um, you know, a couple of years in advance, really, at least, when you're going to need a new car. Um, and you also know it's going to cost you a fair bit of money. Now, you might be looking at finance and things, but, you know, essentially, if you are looking at buying a car outright in a couple of years, that's going to be a big ticket expense. It could also be things like a wedding. If you're helping um, one of your children out or your grandchildren or some something with um, paying for a wedding, again, that's often something you're going to know a little bit in advance, um, but that's going to cost you a lot of money. Lots of other things that can fall into this category. Um, you know, a big milestone holiday, 50th birthday or something, um, moving house, maybe you're, um, maybe you're putting an extension in or remodeling the kitchen, something expensive that's going to cost you, yeah, something expensive, but something that you can plan for in the future. So that's your big ticket items. And the last one is obviously your long-term objectives. Now, for most people, you know, long-term is retirement, right? It's financial freedom. And when I say retirement, I don't necessarily mean, you know, saving up till age 65 to put your feet up, play golf every day of the week. You know, it could be just that you're, um, you're wanting to change careers or you're wanting to um, move to part-time work or whatever. It's a long-term objective that's kind of five years, five years plus, probably 10 years plus, something that's going to be a fundamental change to your lifestyle that you are saving up to be able to fund that change. And all three of those different objectives, your emergency money, your big ticket money, or your retirement or financial future, those three areas, everyone's going to have different objectives around that. So, you know, for some people, they want to be retiring early. Maybe some people don't have children, so they're not going to have to um, be worrying about weddings and house deposits and things like that. Um, the level of emergency expenses that you need, the level of comfort is going to be different. Maybe some people want to have two years worth of living expenses saved up, depending on your industry. Maybe if you're a freelancer, you want to have um, a, a bigger safety buffer. They're all going to be really different, but the important thing is, is to start sitting down and actually thinking about what they are for you. Because once you start to put some clarity around what those objectives actually look like, you can then start to put some, um, some monetary value to those. So, if you're thinking about, um, you know, doing that that uh, kitchen extension, you can start having to think about what that's actually going to cost you. Um, once you start to know what these objectives are all going to cost you, you can then start working backwards and say, okay, well, how much do I have to save? How much do I have to invest? And what sort of level of return do I need to get to actually reach those objectives? And then all of a sudden, once you start to do that, for basically all these different levels of objectives, you start to get some real clarity around whether they're achievable or not. You know, once you start to run those numbers on, okay, if I put 200 pound a month into this investment and I do that for five years and it gets a return of 4%, how much am I going to end up with at the end of that period? And it becomes pretty clear whether you're going to be on track to actually meet that objective or not. 
And again, once you've gone through that process, it's then really simple to reverse engineer it if you need to. So if you've, you've put all that information in, you've done the calculations and you're not going to hit that objective, you've got some decisions to make. You can either revise that objective. So, okay, you wanted to spend 30,000 or 20,000, say, on a, on a kitchen remodel. You're not going to be able to reach that based on how much you can afford to save. So what do you do? You know, do you um, just decide, okay, well, in that case, we're going to have to stick to a strict 15,000 pound budget for that kitchen remodel. Or do you say, well, right, rather than doing that kitchen remodel in three years, let's say for an additional year and do it in in four years. So again, it just comes down to actually writing those down, having them very explicit and very um, concrete and specific, because then you can actually make conscious decisions around what changes you're, you're prepared to make in order to reach those objectives. And once you've got really specific around all those objectives, all three levels, you can then start to look at what is going to be the best financial tool for the job of that objective. So, uh, of that objective. So, um, for the emergency, the short-term money, you know, when we think about what is it that we want that money to do? Okay, so we want it to be available in in an emergency. So, that means we want it to be available quickly. Um, We want to be able to take it out whenever we want with no penalty, okay? Um, We want the value to be guaranteed. So, you don't want to have £3,000 in an emergency fund and then when you go to access it, it's actually only worth £2,200 because that might leave you short. So you need to have certainty amount around how much is in there for you to use and you need to have, um, you need to have easy access to that money. So once we've kind of narrowed that down, it's pretty obvious what the option is going to be. You know, for emergency um, savings, really cash is going to be your option, right? Because if you had an emergency fund in the stock market, invested in the stock market, you know, you could need that money when coronavirus is really hitting it like earlier in this year. So you might go to access that, that emergency pot and it's actually down 40%. Well, that's not what you want. That's not what that, that's not a good tool for that job. Moving up the, the spectrum, I guess, to your more, uh, your big ticket items, your more medium term objectives. You don't need that money immediately. You don't need that money right away. Um, but it's not super far in the future either. You know, you, you are probably going to need that in, in a few years time. Now, you know, when we talk about investing in the stock market, generally we like to say that you, sh- you should be investing for five years plus to be able to ride out those ups and downs in the stock market. So depending on what end of the spectrum is for these big ticket expenses, you know, potentially investing is not going to be the right thing for you either, but it starts to open up a few more options. So, you know, it's things like, for example, fixed deposits with the bank. Um, these uh, fixed deposits are essentially like savings accounts, but they lock you in for a certain amount of time in exchange for a higher rate of return. So you might be able to take out, say, a two-year fixed deposit that will pay you a little bit more interest than you were going to get from a regular savings account. Now, you are locked in there for two years, but again, if you've planned correctly, that might not necessarily be the end of the world. You know, you can afford to um, give up some access to that money in order to get a slightly higher return. Again, that's potentially a better tool for the job of saving for a big ticket item. Once we then move on to your longer term objective, so kind of five years plus, again, that's a longer time frame. So you don't need immediate access to that money. You've got a longer investment time frame, so you can afford to put up with some fluctuations. And actually, the biggest objective with, with, with uh, this pot of money is for it to grow as much as possible. 
you know, if you think about what this objective is about, it's about financial freedom, it's about retirement, um, and generally the more money you have available for those things, the better off your end objective is going to be, the better off that retirement is going to look. Um, the more options you're going to have, the more flexibility you're going to have. So the best tool for that particular job is something that will maximise your return. And when we're talking about investments, you know, that generally is going to come back to investing at least a reasonable portion into the stock market. So it's really important to go through that process because, um, like I said, unless you have a roadmap for actually what you want your future to look like, what you want your life to look like, you can't then reverse engineer that to actually working out which is going to be the best, um, the best actual investment options or the investment tools for that job. And obviously, uh, in addition to that, we've talked. I've talked there about the different like investment options in terms of asset classes, but actually, um, it's just important that you um, look at the different wrappers as well, so the different types of accounts. So again, you know, if you're um, saving up an emergency fund, saving that into a pension is not going to be a good option. It's not fit for purpose. You know, if you're under the age of fifty-five, you can't access your pension at all. So there's no point saving your emergency fund in there because you're not going to be able to get it out. Um, if, on the other hand, you're saving for retirement, then potentially a pension is going to be a really good option for you. So it's about matching the investment selection to those different objectives, but also about matching the actual investment um, wrapper as well. Again, if you think big ticket items, if it's your first house that you're saving for, things like a lifetime ISA are worth considering. Um, all these different parts it can all seem very confusing when you're looking at it all in, um, in abundance. You're looking at every different possible option you've got out there. It can be really um, difficult to narrow down what's actually the right option for you. So that's why going through that planning process, it will naturally narrow down those options um, because you, know, you can then sort of look at, once you've got that objective really specific, you can then start looking at the options that you've got and crossing them off because they don't match what you want those investments to do. So the next thing I wanted to have a little bit of a talk about is inflation. Now, Rishi Sunak did his, um, his statement recently where he announced that the government were going to be getting rid of what's known as the Retail Price Index, or RPI, and replacing it with a calculation that's basically CPIH, which is Consumer Price Index, including housing. Now, I guess to, to sort of preface this, let's have a talk about what inflation actually is. Now, really, all inflation is is that the way in which prices increase really every year, basically. So I'm sure, you know, we can all remember a time where things that we bought, uh, we buy today were less expensive in the past. So, you know, if we use extreme examples, if you go back to sort of the 70s and 80s, you know, you could buy brand new cars for a couple of thousand pounds. Um, you know, you, you would um, be able to get a, a pint at the pub for 80p or something. Um, you know, prices increase over time, and that's a natural part of the economy. And this does happen for a range of different reasons. There are a number of different ways that um, inflation is driven, um, which I'm not going to go into that really in, in detail today. But essentially, you know, it is normal. Prices go up, our wages go up, the cost of the things we buy go up. Now, the term inflation is kind of a catch-all term for a number of different measures of how this is calculated. And RPI and CPIH are just two of the different ways in which they're calculated. And the way in which it's done because we can't really measure the, the way the price increases of every single thing out there, what these measures do is that they take a basket of goods and then measure how much though that basket has increased. Now, 
the baskets are selected in a way in which they're, they're trying to replicate the economy by by um, choosing a basket that's kind of representative of the stuff that most of us buy. So, for example, I don't have the lists in front of me, but it might be that for the calculations, they look at you know the price of fuel, the price like petrol, um, the price of uh, bread, the price of a pint of milk, the price of a gym membership, the price of a banking fees. There'll be a whole range of things that they'll look at. Now, like I say, they won't that won't include every single item you can buy in the supermarket but it will include a, represent- a representative sample of the things that we all spend. Now, once they do that, they obviously then calculate how much the prices of those things have gone up on average over the year and consolidate that into a single number. Now, in the past, the government has used RPI, the Retail Price Index, as a way to, um, as the preferred measure for inflation, and they're changing that to CPIH. So why is that important? The reason that that is important is because RPI tends to be higher than CPIH. Now, it obviously changes um, all the time. At the, at the time of me recording this, RPI is running at 2.8%. So according to the Retail Price Index, prices, or inf- is going, prices are going up or inflation is running at 2.8%. Um, according to CPIH, it's, uh, the rate of inflation, according to CPIH, is 2%. So based on the um, CPIH, inflation or the price of things is going up less than RPH. And generally, this kind of relationship uh, tends to hold true. So RPI tends to be between 0.8 and 1% higher than CPIH. So there's a number of different reasons why the government have decided to do this, but it's just, it is one of those measures that where they're trying to basically save themselves some money. So one of the, um, the bigger losers from, from this change are bondholders. So I've talked about government gilts before, government bonds and gilts. Um, if you don't know what they are, I do have a video up on my YouTube channel that you might find useful. I can put the link in the show notes that explains what gilts actually are in detail. But essentially, a gilt is a UK government loan. So, you know, when you've seen all this talk about the government having to borrow so much money for coronavirus relief, they do that by issuing bonds. So some bonds pay a fixed rate of return, so uh, or some gilts pay a fixed rate of return as well. So, you know, it might be that the government um, issues bonds that pay half a percent for a 10-year term. Those types of gilts aren't really impacted by RPR inflation um, to, to the government. They impact the person who's invested in them. But from the government's perspective, they have agreed to pay that half a percent for that 10-year term. Where it does impact the government is in what's known as index-linked gilts. And index-linked gilts don't pay a fixed rate of return, they pay a fixed margin over the, the, over the rate of inflation. So um, if, for example, let's say um, that fixed margin that they decide to pay is, just to make the numbers nice and easy, 0.2%. So at the moment, if you've got RPI running at 2.8%, then the government might be paying a 0.2% margin. So they need to pay at the moment 3% as a return to those guilt holders. Now, if that rate of inflation goes up and down, if RPI goes up and down, their rate of payment changes, um, but it stays at a fixed rate of 0.2% above RPI. Now, I'm sure you can see why this is potentially a win for the government, because if they change that to CPIH, then if they keep that same margin, based on current CPIH rates of 2.0%, that means that they now would need to pay 2.2% on that index link guilt, as opposed to 3.5%. Uh, 3% when it's uh, attached to retail price index to RPI. 
So one of the bigger losers from this change is going to be bondholders um, because obviously that, that real rate of return that they're getting is going to be less than when those bonds um, are rated against RPI. And flowing on from this, some of the, um, the biggest holders of government guilt are pension funds. Now, that includes defined contribution schemes. So, you know, if you have a pension fund that has a large portion of, of UK fixed interest, uh, it's probably a pretty safe bet there's going to be a large chunk of UK government gilts in there. So that return that you're going to get from those gilts is going to go down. Um, where the other, the other area where this is going to affect people is those who have uh, defined benefit schemes or final salary pension schemes. Um, because often those schemes, when they start um, either before they've gone into payment or after they've gone into, into payment, there's a component in there that basically assures them an annual increase based on the government's rate of inflation. So if you retire at age 65, you start receiving your pension, let's say it's £20,000 a year from your final salary scheme. Once you retire at 65, the costs of, of living for you are still going to keep going up. So by the time you're 80, if there was no increases, that £20,000 you're receiving is actually worth a lot less. So in order to combat that, the pension schemes agree to provide an annual increase that should keep your uh, payment roughly in, in, in uh, line with inflation. So by the time you turn 85 from, from starting to receive it at 65, you're not going to be receiving £20,000. You might be receiving £28,000 or something. Um, and that is there to make sure that you can keep buying the same amount of stuff with your pension fund. Now, obviously, if that rate of inflation calculation is dropped, it's not going to change how much your prices are going up each year. So the increases that you've been seeing in, in your cost of living, that's still going to happen the same way. It just means that the actual increases you're getting on your pension each year aren't going to be as large. So essentially, the losers on this are people who are relying on their investments um, to provide them with a return. So, you know, it's the people who are investing in government bonds, people who are relying on um, investments that are backed by government bonds, like defined benefit pension schemes are. Um, for me, it just really makes it clear that we, we all need to be paying more attention to our financial situation because, um, especially with interest rates where they are at the moment, these um, opportunities are getting chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. And it means that we've really got to be paying more attention to actually whether we're going to be meeting our objectives because the rules of the game are changing. Um, you know, what, what's been relied upon in the past, we aren't necessarily going to be able to rely on, on in the future. So again, I guess going back to my initial point, it's really important to have clarity around your objectives, to understand what it is you're trying to achieve, and then making sure you're looking at the state of play as it is in the, at the moment and seeing whether you're still going to be on track to meet those objectives. Now, there are some winners from this change. So we've talked about people who've invested money are going to be the losers from it. Some of the winners are, one, are people who um, either have debts that are linked to CPI or who spend a lot of money on costs that are linked to, to CPI, RPI, I should say. So um, some really simple examples are student, student loans is one of them. So at the moment, um, the increase in the student loan, um, out the, the loans outstanding, that is linked to RPI. So at the moment, and there's obviously an interest rate built on that and everything as well, but the, um, the inflation calculation is based on RPI, which is at the moment, like I say, 2.8%. Um, when that changes to, to CPIH, that means that those inflation increases each year are going to be less. So potentially it means that you'll be able to 
um, if you keep making your repayments the same at the same level, you'll be paying off more of the principal because there'll be less um, less interest and less increase added each year. So that is some that is a one positive out of it. Um, the other positive is, like I say, people who spend money with um, on things that are linked to inflation. So uh, again, a really simple example are, are train tickets. So you know the annual increases on train tickets um, for commuters is linked to inflation as well, is linked to RPI. And again, if the government, when the government changes that to CPIH, it means those annual increases aren't going to be quite as big. So for people like that, it's not so much of a, um, a make or break situation, but it's definitely still something to, um, to be thinking about when you're looking at your budget and, and your planning um, sort of going forward. Now, I think importantly, it's important to note that this change isn't just happening overnight. So I believe it's being phased in uh, until 2030. I think from 2025, they're going to start phasing it in. And then by 2030, everything will have been transferred over to using CPIH. So, you know, there's, a, there's quite a long way to go until this is all fully implemented. Um, but uh, it is going to be happening over the long term. I think for me as well, it's just kind of indicative of the world that we are going to be living in. So times are tight. There's no getting around that. There's been a huge amount of money spent on on coronavirus. We are going to be paying paying for it for a number of years. Um, and I think these kind of seemingly subtle changes are going to start impacting on the level of support and the level of, um, I don't know, financial flexibility that we have available to us. So the last thing I wanted to have a talk about today is this concept of a Ponzi scheme. And like I said at the outset, you know, I see a lot of this, I've seen a lot of this stuff on social media lately, which looks very sketchy to me. Um, you know, it's people saying that you can become a millionaire in 12 months trading options or trading Forex signals or whatever. You know, it's normally like a really young guy posing in front of a Lamborghini with two Rolexes and like throwing money in the air and all sorts. And it's really dangerous, to be honest, because even if you're doing that stuff in a legitimate way, even if you are legitimately trading options and trading Forex, that is super, super risky. You know, um, it's just so easy to lose all of your money. And actually, in, in some cases, like trading um, CFDs, contracts for difference, you know, you can even lose more money than what you've put in if you're trading on margin and, and um, if you depending on the types of options you've got and stuff. So it, it's really sketchy stuff. So when you're looking at doing, um, when you're seeing that kind of stuff online um, or on social media, it's really sketchy to get into anyway. But the the returns um, that they kind of show you in this lifestyle they're they're portraying, it can be really attractive. Now, that's at a best case scenario when they're actually doing it in the, doing it in a legitimate way. But my concern is that um, it can be really easy to suck people in by using this concept of a Ponzi scheme. Now, Ponzi scheme. Um, uh, Ponzi scam it's been around for since the dawn of time you know it's a it's a very old form of investment scheme it's not just um, small um, small fry investors or small fry um, people who've been involved in this you may have heard of Bernie Madoff um, Robert De Niro did a movie about him um, he was he was a big Wall Street guy his investment fund was hundreds of, um, of billions of pounds um, and it was all a big Ponzi scheme you know, he had huge institutional investors, people were buying into the story, but it was all fake, basically. So let me explain how a Ponzi scheme works. Essentially, it uses the money from new investors to provide fake returns to existing investors. So let's say 
that I um, I decide to invest some of my money into this scheme. It's offering me really attractive returns. It's saying 20% per annum, um, very low risk. Um, so I, I'm obviously not me personally, but uh, let's say an investor decides to put some money into it and put a thousand pounds in, say, for example. Now, Rather than then, what, what should happen is that that investment manager should invest that money for me. They should get returns from those investments from the stock market or whatever. And then once those returns re- increase my balance, they can then pay me um, pay me the returns I've made, pay me that extra if I wanted it to. Or it can sit in the account and just kind of roll up and grow. The way that a Ponzi schemes works is, let's say I give that investor, one uh, that, that professional investor, £1,000 of my money. They probably aren't going to invest it. They're probably going to take half of that, at least, and go and buy themselves that Lamborghini, buy themselves that Rolex, get hire that private private jet to go to Milan for their Instagram or whatever. So straight away, I've lost a big chunk of my money, but I don't know that. They don't tell me that. But what they then do is they then go and find a new investor. Let's say um, they've got uh, um, you know somebody else down the road who invests another £1,000. And then when I say, well, where are my returns? They take money from that new investor. They take 500 pounds, say 600 pounds from that new investor and give that to me. And so from my, from what I can see, I gave them a thousand pounds. I've now got 1100 pounds. So they've made me a hundred pounds. Okay. That's great. You know, either, either I look at my statement or even I withdraw my money and it seemed legitimate. You know, I put in X amount of money and then I've received back X amount of money plus a return on that investment. And that sounds really good. And I think it's really attractive. And then I go tell my mates, again, very prefacing this, there's not actually me, fake me, goes and tells people and says, oh, this guy, you know, he um, he invested this money for me. He's made me a great return. You should get in as well. You should invest. It's brilliant. That Those people do the same thing. The new investor money keeps pouring in. And the pool of people invested in this in this service or in this scam gets larger and larger and larger. And the problem is, is that as it gets larger and larger and larger, you need to have more and more new money to be able to provide those fake returns to the existing investors. Inevitably, what happens is that you get to a point where it's not possible to bring in enough money to pay returns to everybody. And that is inevitably when the whole thing falls down. So the, um, the investor, the, the, the person running the scam, can sometimes keep it going for a really long time. You know, Bernie Madoff, I don't actually have the the figures in front of me, but, you know, it was years and years and years and years, decades even, that he was able to run this scheme. The problem is that once the returns, once you're being provided with those returns and they look so legitimate, it makes it really hard to justify moving your money. You know, if you're getting 20% return every single year, why would you invest with a financial advisor when they're saying they get you 7%? You're just not going to do it. Um especially when they do it properly and they say, look, there's going to be some risk involved. You're not going to get 7% every year. It's going to fluctuate. You could lose money certain, at certain times. If you compare that to your guy you're already investing with, who's getting you 20% inverted commas guaranteed, you know, it's, you're, not, you're basically going to be along for the ride for as long as that investment is still viable. So, you know, whenever you are, I get, it just comes back to the same, the same old age. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So when you're seeing investments that are promising really high returns with no risk and there's people, even if there's people um, going crazy about online saying that it's great, you know, commenting on these guys' posts saying that they've helped them make 500 quid this week or whatever, you know, you've just got to be really, really careful. 
the investment universe, the um, wealth management um, industry is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly efficient. You know, if there was an investment option out there, even if it was something like Forex trading or signals or whatever, if there was something out there that could provide a 20% guaranteed return every year, it wouldn't just be some 18-year-old from Stoke who'd be doing it. You know, it would be PIMCO. It would be, um, uh, I don't know, Fidelity. It would be all of these really massive investment companies wouldn't just be leaving these amazing returns to Steve-O from Stoke. You know, they would be doing this themselves. And, and, and naturally, once that happens, once there's more competition in the market, the returns often don't get so attractive and stuff like that. So, you know, there are not legitimate investment options out there that are very low risk that can provide you with that level of return. So just be really careful, obviously. Um, make sure you're doing a lot of research. Make sure you're investing with regulated companies that are covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. And just be careful. There's a lot of misinformation out there. It's really easy to, um, to it was really difficult, I should say, to separate what's real from, from what's not. So today we've had a bit of a talk about objectives. I've talked you through my process when I'm talking to clients about um, doing their emergency or their right now money, the big ticket money and their financial future money. We've talked about some of the um, changes that are coming to the way uh, government calculates inflation. Hopefully that wasn't too boring for you, but I think it's something that's going to become more and more relevant as time goes on. Um, and then I've also just talked a little bit about a Ponzi, Ponzi schemes and how they work. You know, it is something that's becoming more and more prevalent, especially on social media. I'm seeing a lot of it out there. Um, and it's, um, it's really important that, you, that you're safe with your own money and you, you're uh, making choices for the long term. So I hope that's been useful. Um, as I said, if you've not subscribed to the podcast, then please do. Um, please get in touch with me. With me. Uh, all my contact information is in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to answer questions that you've got. Um, like I say, I want to provide rel relevant content. I want to provide value to, to people who are listening. Um, the downloads on, on the podcast are starting to trickle up, which is awesome. You can also check me out on YouTube. I'm over there uh, under my name, Jason Mountford, and it's UK Money TV. Um, or you can check me out on Instagram as well um, under my name, Jason Mountford, on Twitter. You can check me out there on LinkedIn, all sorts of editing socials, whichever is your favorite social, you can probably find me on there. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to tune into the podcast today, guys, and I uh, look forward to speaking to you next week.